0: You're listening to a sermon from the series, Church 101, an FFC teaching series through Titus. For more sermons and information, visit our website at firstfamily.church. I'm becoming increasingly convinced that the most practical people I know are, generally speaking, the most doctrinal people I know. So let me rephrase. Let me just restate that for you. Ready? I'm becoming increasingly convinced that the most practical people I know are, generally speaking, the most doctrinal people I know. Like, what do you mean by that, Todd? Explain. How about I illustrate? When we were um, either, I think I may have been single, honey. I'm not sure. Maybe we were newly married, but we lived in Douglasville, Georgia. And I'm not sure if if you were visiting. I told the first service you may have been visiting. But we were gonna buy a new car. We were either just newly married or we were about to get married. I just had got to get this new job in Douglasville as youth pastor. And so what better thing to do than after a new job and a new marriage, you get a new car, right? Uh, so we were gonna, looking around. I remember the day we were looking around at around Highway 5, it was called, and we settled on this VW. They told us how much it'd be, how much our payments would be, and we thought, well, well like most couples, we'll just figure out how to make it work, right? We want a new car new wife, new job, I kind of I had this whole idea, like, this is just the right thing to do, we were driving a, a Dodge Colt, and it worked, and um, so anyway, all I remember is, the next day or so in that time frame, um, one of the deacons of our church, um, he said, hey, Todd, let's go get some lunch, I hopped in his white truck, and, and I, it was really soon after our kind of a decision to maybe buy this VW, we hadn't bought it, we were going to go back and get it, And he gets, we get in the car, and the truck, there was some general conversation, but at some point he says to me, he says, hey, you know, you don't have to buy a new car if you don't want to, like, and I thought, well, how did he find that out? How did he know? I guess we must have said something in conversation, maybe overheard, and I said, well, we don't feel like we have to, but you know, a new job, new family, maybe just kind of get a new start here in Douglasville, just get a new car. He said, Todd, um, you, you don't impress our deacons anymore. You don't impress the church, you don't impress the youth group or the families by having a new car. I mean, what you drive is fine because we love you for who you are and for what God's doing in your life. And you're here for those reasons. It doesn't matter what you drive. You know that, right? It was kind of poking in a little bit. Kind of nudged me to think through. And and I, I must admit, there may have been some of that in there, I don't know. But I felt immediately released and free like to drive the Dodge Colt. I'm like, hey... And what he did was he, he rooted his, his practical way to help save me some money. <laughs> That's what he did. He said, hey, you don't need to do that. Don't worry about it. He rooted that in the fact that he had some really solid doctrine about what we are as a church and who we are and how we love each other. His doctrinal depth paid off in practical financial savings. Does that make sense? So I've come to believe. That the most practical people I know are, generally speaking, the most doctrinal people I know. They connect things in regards to what they believe and how they behave. That just makes sense. Titus does that in chapter 2. We well, you open your Bibles to this second chapter in this pastoral epistle? And let's look for a few brief moments at this very practical chapter that's actually rooted in a very doctrinal book. In fact, it's a book aimed at elders and how they should teach sound doctrine, how they should live as a model and an example. And yet, in the middle of this, he, he addresses the church at large and the different groups of the church, and he addresses them as one body and says, here's how you should live. Here's how all this doctrine should show up, okay? So we're going to see today, as we look at these 14 verses of chapter 2, we're going to see three main things kind of show up. We're going to see... Things that are doctrinal show up, say doctrinal. We're going to see things that are practical show up, say practical. And we're going to see something that's supernatural show up, say supernatural. In fact, these would be three overarching umbrellas for these 14 verses. Same with me doctrinal, practical, and supernatural. And I would say to you at the, out, at, the, at the outset that the supernatural makes the doctrinal and practical possible, it's what undergirds everything. I'll show you what I mean. You might convert word it like this. Here's another way to kind of see these 14 verses. That the first verse talks about what fathers do. And I mean by that spiritual fathers. Don't think earthly fathers. And please don't think church fathers as an ancient old, okay? <laughs> I just mean those who are elders in the church. That's a family kind of word. It speaks to those who lead God's spiritual family. So I just mean by that spiritual fathers, you know. What do they do? They teach God's word. This is the first verse. And then the next verses talk about how the family acts. They show God's word. In other words, doctrine is lived out practically. And what fuels all of this is the word made flesh. It's Jesus Christ. We'll see this as the supernatural aspect of the doctrinal and the practical. Or you might can word it like this: here's three roles or three other ways to look at this. First one talks about shepherds. 2-10, through ten, talk about sheep, and 11-14, through 14, the Savior. However you choose to look at it, whatever words you use to play with this chapter, here's the driving point. Here's kind of the take-home truth we're going to see today, okay? That sound doctrine is the backbone of a healthy church and life. Will you say that phrase with me? Sound doctrine is the backbone of a healthy church and life. It shows up practically and it's empowered divinely. Say the last phrase. Right beliefs are crucial to right behavior. All we're saying in this statement and all we'll see in this chapter is that the most practical people, generally speaking, are your most doctrinal people. I want to prove that point and showcase that this morning for a bit, can we? Let's read the chapter. I'll spend a few minutes going through some of the groups and words but I want to try to make pretty good tracks here and get to verse 11 and talk more about what fuels all of these expectations and kind of all of this, um, this understanding of how we're to live, okay? Verse 1 of Titus 2, But as for you, he's speaking there to Titus, Paul is. Notice the connecting word, but. So unlike the false teachers, okay, Titus was to teach what accords with sound doctrine, the implication being that what the false teachers were teaching did not line up with things that were healthy. The word sound, it's the word from where we get our word hygiene. So it's clean, uh, healthy. It's the kind that makes you grow. He says, you teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he lays out what I think would be sound doctrine, as well as the way this sound doctrine is seen. He says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Just circle for now the two words, older men, would you? He then, in verse 3, gets to the older women. He says, they're likewise to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good, and so train the young women. Why don't you circle older women in the beginning of 3, and then circle young women Here in the middle of four. They're to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 6. Likewise, urge thee, guess what? Circle this, younger men. So far you've got eight words in four groups. What are they? Say them with me. Older men, older women, young women, younger men. What I think would be the... uh, main food groups of the church, okay? This is, the, this is kind of what makes up the church. You fit into one of those categories more than likely. He says younger men are to be self-controlled. And, and then he says to Titus, show yourself in all respects. And by the way, I tend to think that phrase in verse 7 indicates to me that Titus is considered part of the younger men category. He does list it as a separate verse in one sense, separate sentence. But I think he must have been in the same age range as Timothy, a younger man. And so he kind of calls him out specifically as a younger man and says, You yourself, Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. In your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that any opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And then he mentions a fifth group, bond servants, circle that, some of your versions may say slaves. A better understanding would be just the idea of an indentured servant. They were part of families, and so they lived with families. And so here they're given instruction about how to interact and be treated and to treat within the context of family. Alright? And so he addresses this. It's not an approval of that necessarily, as much as it is an admission that it existed in that culture. He says here, bond servants or indentured servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything they to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So here are these five groups, and I would say in one sense the, the bond servants could fit within one of those previous four, assuming the bond servant was a Christian. Maybe in that case you may say, well, he's, a, he's calling bond servants out or indentured servants because maybe they're unbelievers who worked in believing families. That's why he has five groups. Could be. But I still think even in that case, or probably if they're believers, you could say that in in one sense, these first four groups kind of make up the gist of the church. So after listing these groups and kind of their expectations, their traits, he says in verse 11 an interesting thing. He kind of goes right back to doctrine. So he says, Titus, teach doctrine Then he kind of describes how doctrine looks. And then he says, for the grace of God has appeared. Circle the word for. You should have two connecting words circled in your Bible. Chapter 2, verse 1, but, which contrasts what Titus is to teach with what the false teachers were teaching. And then the word for in verse 11, which explains and gives to us the the motivation for all of 2 through 10. How do older women... Younger women, older men, younger men, how do they actually accomplish this? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and training us. Isn't that beautiful? That it's God's grace that not only saves you, but it is God's grace that shows you how to live. See, a lot of us think this. Man, grace shows me how to get to heaven. It does, but guess what? Grace shows you how to walk on the earth as well. So he says, the grace of God's appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. There's a negative terminal to this battery of the Christian life. You see that? There are some things to renounce. There are some things to deny. There are some things we don't do. But there are also things that we do. This is the positive aspects of the battery of the Christian life. He says, we are to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. I have discovered, just in years of Bible study, this is just a little free tip for you, that most of the time, the biblical authors, when they're writing about their Christian walk, they couple things in battery form. Did you know that? They'll have something you shouldn't do, and something you should do. That's why I think it's often, an ex- it's not the best teaching just to say, oh man, it's, don't worry about all the don'ts, just th- focus on all the positive. Well, actually, the Bible has some negative things in it that you shouldn't do, okay? But it's not just out of your own mere strength or a unnecessary or wrong kind of fear. It's actually coupled with what you should do. Remember Ephesians, Paul said, if you've been stealing, stop stealing, but now give to those who have need. If you've been lying, stop lying and speak truthfully. It's kind of like that a lot for the New Testament. Here he says the same things. Renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, but live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Let's push Paul one more time and say this. If you scan these character traits, if you scan these um, expectations, you're going to find that the word self-controlled or the word sober are the most predominant. I mean, just a, just a gr- grammatical search of most used words reveals that here's a primary expectation of God's people. Listen very carefully, church. Self-control and sober-mindedness. That doesn't mean you've got to be like a stick-in-the-mud kind of personality. What he's referring to is this. There has to be a sense of restraint and control in the way you exercise your appetites. Notice the phrase, in the present age. Do you see that? Into verse 12. Couple that with what he said about the Cretans. Remember? They were evil, uh, deceitful talkers. They were lazy. They were low belly kind of guys and girls. In other words, they just lived in wantonness and indulgence. There was never any kind of restraint to their appetites. This is the typical Cretan. But it should not have been the typical Christian Christian. The Christian should have shown something that was counterculture. That was different. And that was possible by God's grace. Okay? So I just want to make sure you understand something here. And I'm going to say it this way, and I hope it's heard well. I hope it's said well, actually. When God saves you, he saves you to a life of at least one thing for sure. Self-control, sober-mindedness, so that you can effectively serve Him, and discern truth from faults. I mean, the, it, the, our culture is not a culture of sobriety, control. Our culture is one of indulgence, isn't it? I mean, our leaders... Um, those we highlight as our heroes, for the, for the vast majority of them, it's just do whatever you want. That's what our culture celebrates and glorifies. In the middle of that, in the present age, it was true in the first century, it's now true in the 21st. In that present age, you have to have the courage and the conviction and the grace, the, the grace motivation to be different than that. And that's not a man-made thing you do. You don't just drum up the strength to like, oh, I'm going to go against the culture. I'm going to swim a different direction. It's all fueled by God's grace. That's what I'm saying to you guys. So just keep this in mind. This is an incredibly important section of this chapter. We'll talk more as we kind of go through it again and maybe highlight some things. But Paul here is calling for a different kind of people on the island of Crete. Fueled, of course, by God's grace, which trains us to live this way. fuels us and empowers us that way. These kinds of people who are living counterculture, they're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And by the way, there's an interesting thing in that phrase there. The appearing of the glory of our great God. You know, you might think Paul would say, he's he's waiting for the appearing of our great God. But he doesn't say that, does he? What does he say? He's waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God. Why would he say that? Because the word glory there means splendor, means weight, it means something magnificent to behold. And so when, when, when Jesus comes back, you're gonna feel and see the beautiful weight and splendor of his presence. I mean, we're just not waiting on anybody to come back. Can we just all agree on that? You're waiting on Jesus who died, was buried and rose again and is now sitting in heaven Ruling. He is Lord of all, and when he comes, he'll be visibly seen as that. When he brings his kingdom to earth. We pray after all, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when Jesus comes, guess what? You won't just let me say this the right way again. Yeah. I mean you will see him, but you're gonna see and feel something far I'm like, oh, there's just a Jesus is here. Okay, let it die. Man, you're going to see the glory of the Son of God in the sky. The weight and power and presence of the Creator, Sovereign King. See, that, that helps us live self-controlled and upright, doesn't it? We're waiting for Jesus. And He's the one who gave Himself, verse 14 says, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. Who are zealous for good works. I like to see this last phrase as here's a jealous Jesus, and that's a good thing to say. He purchased you with his blood, he bought you to himself. He's purifying you and forming you as his own, so he wants you then to be zealous. So a jealous Jesus owns a zealous people. And this, again, goes to to kind of what fuels all of our living in this way. Because Jesus owns us, he holds us, he's got us, he's forming us and purifying us. He's redeemed us, so guess what? The works he has ordained for us to do before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 2.10, man, we will do with great energy and zeal. So I see these verses here, 11 through 14, as really the fuel, the foundation for 2, 1 through 10. Again, something very doctrinal shows up as something very practical, but it's all driven by what is supernatural. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, the grace of God, and He's appeared, and He brought salvation for all, and He's trained us now how to live. This is what's going on in this chapter. Let me review a couple things in these uh, sections briefly before I kind of wrap things up, okay? I mean, make pretty quick tracks today, but I want to just cover a few things in these three sections. doctrinal, practical, supernatural, to make sure you have a better handle on them. Verse 1, I just want to mention once more, he's he's saying here that Titus is to teach what accords with sound doctrine. In other words, that healthy uh, word of God that causes the right kind of growth. Titus here wasn't to bring his own list to the table. That's what the false teacher was doing. And on this man, just, just everybody smile real big because you wouldn't want my list and I wouldn't want your list. Amen? Your man made list, your preferences, your suggestions, they're good for you and mine are good for me, and maybe a few will cross. But for the most part, man, they're just individual and their preferences. But we don't bring those to this gathering. Did you know that? If I do, I'll tell you what they are. I'll say it's an opinion, and you can go to sleep for a bit. Okay? What we do each and every week is we bring to you the sound doctrine, the clean, healthy doctrine. Meet and we stick our noses in this book and we say, Let's get, let's, let's, let's dig in here. Let's come under the weight of this, this authority, so that we can grow. See, false teachers do the opposite. They bring you their lists. Chapter one lays this out. They do whatever they can to make sure you fit their mold. What Paul says to Titus is, Hey, you teach what lines up with sound doctrine, what's once and for all been delivered to the saints, he told you. So I just want to say this to all of you here who've been here perhaps one year one month, six months, or 12 years. Maybe you helped plant the church. Here's a non-negotiable we will always hold at First Family. That when we gather together, it's the sound doctrine that will garner our attention. Okay? We are a little long-winded. We are pretty intense. We like to dig in, and sometimes we say things, you're like, man, that's pretty tough. We're just going to open this book and say, What does it say to us in this culture? And then we're going to come under the weight of it, all of us, me and you, all of us together, the elders, deacons, staff, our church, shepherds, sheep, we are all come under it. Does that make sense? Because this is what produces growth. This is what produces spiritual hygiene. It's the word for sound. So this is what your shepherds will do. This is what First Family is involved in. This is why we say sometimes it's really best if you bring a Bible Now, I know sometimes guests can't understand that. And I don't mean by that necessarily a hard copy. You've got a phone with you and your Bible's on it, that's good. I'm not trying to worry about the the version type, you know, whether it's digital or hard copy. But because we look at the sound doctrine week after week, it's helpful if you look at it with us. This is why our curriculum is always intense. There's a lot of it. There's various components to it. There's some for the Lighthouse members, there's some for the Lighthouse leaders, there's even extra notes for those who want to dig deeper. It's why in your small groups, we kind of stay with our text. We dig in further. We have a a laser-like approach. Why? We feel like the more we know about this book, the more we understand the author of this book, the more we see what this book calls us to, the healthier we'll become spiritually. Okay? Now, let me just make a simple observation before I move on. If you're feeling spiritually sick... It may be that you have a lack of spiritual nutrition. And that you've been trying to read, and I'm not against reading help books by Christians. I've written a couple. I hope people read mine, all right? I'm not against that, or music, or CDs, or videos. Check out our library. It's a great resource. But those things can't replace the Word of God. Do they often help us understand it better? Yes. And do they sometimes highlight it? Yes. But I think, I have this fear that sometimes churches have become so commercialized in things about the Bible that we've actually forgotten to actually read the Bible. Like, if you want to see your spiritual health really deepen, here's just a very simple habit to begin. Just read large chunks of the Bible. We're in a soundbite society. and I'm not going to go off here on another rabbit trail. But let me just encourage you, if you want to see your spiritual health deepen, just commit to reading large chunks of the Bible. You'll be surprised how quickly the hygienic doctrine of God will bring health to your life. Perspective. And how practical you'll start living in light of the doctrine you're learning. i got to move on. This was Titus' role And it was directed at at least four groups. Older men, older women, young women, younger men, and bond servants. Can I just give you a word for each of these that I think kind of summarizes the traits mentioned? I think for older men, and we're not going to go through every one and try to define it here. I wish we could over a period of months. But for the sake of today, let's just say that older men, the general gist of these words is the idea of stability. Kind of a pillar in the church. They've kind of been through the family years. They've got some, you know, some length behind them. They got some credibility, something to show for kind of what they've believed for a while, and so they're now dignified. That kind of word means like a posture of stability, the sense that you know what I'm, I'm kind of firm in what I'm seeing is true, what I've experienced. They're self controlled, they're sober minded, they're sound. You see the word steadfast. So I see these men as very stable. I think older men are those who have. Of raised their kids, have kind of done the family thing, at least as a parent, we'll call it. Or if they're not married, they would be at that age where that would have been accomplished, okay? So stability seems to ring true for older men, kind of the, the goal, the pattern, consistency. He then says to older women that they're to be an example. Notice the words used here, reverent in behavior. That's kind of a visible thing. Not slanderers, that's how they speak. Or slaves to much wine. That's their appetite. And I think what he's saying there is if someone's a drunk, you would know it. So there's a lot of visibility in this about older women. Meaning, hey, live a life that is exemplary. In order to teach what is good. That, again, is this idea of, of, of modeling, of, exa- of being an example. By the way, some may wonder, well, how do I know if I'm an older woman or a younger woman? I knew the women would laugh at that. Or somebody, like, hey, hey, Again, I think this comes back to this. I think he's saying older women are those who have kind of served their family and raised their kids. They're kind of on the other side of that. So that puts you, in my opinion, and I think, textually, I can prove this, into the older women category. If you're still in these years of doing what it says next, watch this. Loving your children, your husband. And that doesn't mean that you don't love your husband if you're an older woman. What he's saying there is you... You're not managing your home in the same way. There's a different environment when, you're all, when your kids are all home than when they're not. We're on the cusp of sending out our fourth one, Brooke. She'll be graduating in May, and we'll be looking at a phase where it's kind of an empty nester a little bit. A lot of grandkids are filling up the spaces. That's nice, and the kids are marrying. and they're bringing their spouses around. That's great, but it is a different phase. We're going to be in this older man, older woman category. Sorry, honey just told the whole church. I just told them all about us, didn't I? So just be aware of that. That's what he's looking at. And I think it fits the context of chapter one. When you look at an elder, you look at his family, those kind of things. Just kind of be aware of that. I see older men as men of stability. Older women here is women of example. And that's how they're teaching, yes, verbally and visually, the young women to do what they did. Look what it says. To love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, Pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Nothing in there about necessarily how to go about each of those. So you may have different preferences about some of that. But the point is, those are the end game goals for the younger women who are managing their homes and their husbands and their their environments. They're loving all those involved. They're they're having to give priority to their home. In fact, that's the word for young women. It would be the word priority. And I might say home priority or family priority, This doesn't say that a woman can't work outside of her home. It says, though, that she needs to work at home, though. What that means is make home your focus. Make home your priority. And I think sometimes in our culture, you know, pastors and people get afraid to say this. I'm not afraid to tell you this. I think it's clear in the Bible throughout that women are industrious, they're powerful, they're talented, they're gifted, and they can work. But we can't work at the expense of our families. In fact, let me share this with you. It's an insightful biblical trend. Did you know that most, if not all, of the times in the Bible where a woman's role is mentioned, it's in regard to families or the word home. But fathers is almost expressly used in regards to individuals. Did you know that? You can track it and check me. It's my opinion that those things lean into this, that there is no greater centering force for a home than a mom, a wife, a, a woman who's focused on the family. It makes the greatest difference. I think that's what Paul is telling Titus to, to, to relay to the Cretan women there. Make sure that you're a woman of priority about your home. Notice he says here that the word of God may not be reviled. So a lot's at stake here. He then says, likewise urge the younger men to be self-controlled, If you end at verse 6 with the younger men category, that's odd that this is the smallest of the traits. This is the simplest list. Maybe he's saying, younger men, I'll just give you one word. Be disciplined in everything. So it may be a shorter list, but it's an all-encompassing word. He's just saying, if you are a younger man, show discipline. Now, if you include verse 7, that Titus is part of this group, that discipline would go to being a respectable model of good works, uh, integrity in your teaching, sound speech that can't be condemned. Again, a lot's at stake here, so the opponents may not put us to shame. They won't say evil things about us or our lifestyle. Again, the word I think he uses for young men is discipline. Now let me connect some dots for you. I talked about older women, younger women briefly, and the connection there, old women showing and, and teaching verbally kind of what they did so that young women can follow suit. If you want to be an older man of stability, that's chapter 2, verses 2 right in there. If you want to be that kind of older man, then you have to be a younger man of discipline. You see, this is the result. Stability, I believe, is the result of years of discipline. So can I just encourage the younger men who are here? If If the goal is like, man, I'd love to... You know, maybe pick an older man in our church, you know, 65, 70, 75, and he's like a rock, he's like a pillar. It's like, man, that guy doesn't waver. If that's your goal, that doesn't happen overnight. It happens through years of discipline. Now watch this, younger men, listen to me. Reigning in and restraining your indulgences and appetites. Not just living by what you feel all the time, what you think would make you feel better at the moment, what you want now, and I mean this even financially, sexually. You can't just be a a young man given to your appetites if in the end you want to be a man of stability because older men of stability come from younger men of discipline. All right? These are the four groups that Paul tells Titus to teach sound doctrine to, and he gives them exact ways to do it. Those words again, stability, example, priority in the home, and then discipline. He does mention bond servants. I think the word there might be the word pleasant. There's two or three words you could choose probably, but the sense is if you were to apply this to employees, that's a pretty big stretch by the way, but if you get from that century to this and you bridge that gap, perhaps you could say this is more of an employee kind of situation, He's just saying there, be pleasant. Don't be argumentative. Don't be hard to work with. You know, don't always have a better answer than your boss, perhaps. You know, just, and don't, don't take from the cash register because you think your boss is cheating you on the paycheck. I mean, these things are listed here. I think the overall sense is be a pleasant employee. Now, again, that's a, that's a big jump applicationally. But in our culture, perhaps, it's the best way to kind of understand what's happening here. Again, both of these things are done so that we would adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now notice, church, look at this. See the doctrine, the word doctrine in verse 10? Look back at verse 1. What is Titus to teach? Say it with me. Doctrine. So it bookends this entire section of practicality. So in one sense, Paul's telling Titus, make sure the church in every one of its kind of groups lives in a self-controlled, God-honoring God-word-vindicating way. Because we don't want those on the outside to look in and say, yeah, you say you believe one thing, but man, it never shows up. And who hasn't heard that at times? Right, church? We all have. This is why I want to say to you this, and I wish every seminary would adopt this rule. I know they won't. But if, if I could, I would make one change to the whole seminary kind of track for pastors about do they really know the theology. I would say you don't get your degrees until after your schooling is over and you show in life that you actually lived it out. Like I put like a three-year window on it. Like you're done with your classes, now we're going to watch. Because you know what? You don't find out if you believe your theology in the classroom. You find out if you believe your theology in the fray of life. Now, I don't think it'll ever work. I don't know how you do that. But in my mind, I'm like, man, that'd be the way to do it. You got your education. Now, we're going to see if you really believe it and see if you live it out. The same is true for all of us, isn't it? You you say amen in this room, don't you? Come on, work with me, people, right? And you know what? You should. There's a congregational aspect to affirming truth and doctrine. You should. We do believe this. But you know how we really... Find out if you really, really believe it. It's not whether you nod in that chair. It's when you leave that door. How do you treat your wife tonight? How will you respect your husband tonight? How will you react to your kids? Kids, how will you respond to your parents? How will you talk about your boss tomorrow when you go to work? How will you treat your employees when you go to work? Does that make sense? That's when we really find out, oh, you're a Christian? That makes sense. Suddenly, the doctrinal, when it gets really practical, it becomes very believable. That's what Paul is calling Titus to say to his church. Teach sound doctrine. Have them live in this way. And then when the outsiders and opponents look at us, the word of God won't be derailed or blasphemed or reviled. It'll be like, wow, that's, that's living proof. Now, when you see that, you may think, Todd, that's a, that's a long list you're inviting me to. I'm not inviting you to a list. I don't have four lists, younger women list, older men list. I don't have that. I'm inviting you into a life. Church, hear me well. This is really the point of 11 through 14. If it were just a list, if Paul were saying, yeah, I'm inviting you to my list, it's better than the false teacher's list, Titus, give this list instead, that's just one poison for another. But instead he says, for the grace of God has appeared. He ties every bit of his doctrine, every bit of his practicality into this singular person named Jesus Christ who's brought salvation for all people and who trains us how to live this way. That's why the fuel for everything you're called upon to do as a believer, the motivation for how you live within the church as one of these kinds of people, younger, older, men or women, is not found within some program or a pastor's message. It's not found within some unique uh, type of uh, small group. It's found within the person and work of Jesus Christ. The gospel motivates every bit of our Christian life. That's why Paul says here, the grace of God has appeared. It's a past tense word. He's referring to Jesus. And Jesus not only brings salvation for all people, he brings the training necessary to show that salvation. So I, I just want to make sure you understand this. Don't leave with a list mentality. Leave with a life mentality. That the life of Jesus empowers my life. Notice what he says here about Jesus. He gave himself for us. Isn't that beautiful? The sacrificial lamb of God. He redeemed us. So you're not who you were. I mean, could somebody amen that? Amen, right? I was speaking to one of our young moms in the church this week about this very topic. And, and she just shared I don't know, 10, 15 verses. She's going to talk at the women's event coming up. Of all the beautiful things God has made us to be and that we are because of redemption. Does that minimize your sin? Not at all. In fact, it maximizes God's supernatural ability. He can take something dead and lifeless and wicked and vile and turn it into something so beautiful and worthwhile, useful. That's what God's done. He has taken a dead corpse and he has breathed life into it and regenerated it into making you a beautiful trophy of his grace you have been redeemed and why? so that you could be zealous for good works he's redeemed you from lawlessness he's purifying you for himself don't you love the personal nature of that like Jesus owns you church did you hear that Jesus owns you he bought you he loves you he's gathered you to himself he relates to you you're his own possession that's a positive word it's like something he values and treasures so yes we treasure the the priceless person of Jesus but guess what he treasures you He's jealous for you so that you can be zealous for him. This is the fuel that motivates every bit of the expectations within the church. And this is why churches that remove the gospel, churches that remove the foundation of Christ's life and completed work, when they remove that, all they're left then is like a glorified optimist club. It's like a spiritualized uh, you know, YMCA or something. Nothing against those things. But they don't contain the power of the gospel within them. But only the church on earth has the power of God. It's the message of salvation. That's why at first time we'll always stay spot on, centered on the gospel. We don't move past it, amen? We just build on top of it. Everything starts there. And so as you leave today... Please don't think I'm giving you another list for your category. I'm actually showing you the right kind of life to live, empowered by the beautiful person of Jesus, who's brought every bit of the grace you need to live just as God asks you to live. You see, grace is always better than guilt. The false teachers, they used guilt. Oh, you bunch of a low bellies, lying, talking, lazy people. Here's 14 things you've got to do. And they'll just lay the list on them and you just feel guilty, don't you? But grace instead says, oh, here's what Jesus did. And then we live in light of it. See, I've just come to know this, that, that guilt says, what do others demand? And then tries to live to match up all the time. But grace says, here's what Jesus did. And we live in light of that. And man, I want to choose grace every time. It doesn't lower the bar. It doesn't, it doesn't excuse our sin. It just simply shows there's something in someone far more powerful and loving and beautiful than man-made power to live this way. And it's the beautiful person of Jesus Christ and the grace he brought when he came. Question for you. And I gotta wrap up. On what are you depending to live this way? What's your fuel for living as a younger man and the discipline required? What's your fuel for bringing priority to your home as a younger woman? What's your fuel, your motivation for living as a stable, consistent, persevering older man? What's your fuel for training young women as an older woman? And letting them see your example year after year. The best highest octane fuel you can have is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace revealed in Jesus. And when that sinks deep and takes root, then the doctrine we believe shows up in practical ways because we're fueled by the supernatural. That's how the Savior affects both the shepherd's And the sheep. That's how the doctrinal becomes practical. That's how the fathers of the church work with the family of the church. It's all because it's fueled by the word made flesh, Jesus.